Good morning. Today's Bible reading is from two chapters, one from Ephesians uh, 4, 1 to 16, another one from Revelation chapter 7, uh, 9 to 17. Uh, now, Ephesians chapter 4 from 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But each one of us, grace, has been given as Christ appointed. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measures of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head and that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined held together by every supporting ligaments, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The next one is from Revelation chapter 9. Chapter 7, words from 9. Revelation chapter 7, words from 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God for ever and ever. Amen. 
then one of the elder asked me these in white robes who are they and where did they come from i answered sir you know and he said these are they who have come out of the great tribulation they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb therefore they are before the throne of god and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence never again will they hunger never again will they thirst the sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd he will lead them to spring of living water and god will wipe away every tear from their eyes thanks danny morning folks welcome along to Wagga evangelical church if you're visiting today a special welcome to you um, it's great to have you along my name's tim i'm one of the pastors here at WEC. Um, we're as steve mentioned in our final sermon on the series of uh, our doctrinal series our statements of belief and today we're talking about the church uh, how about we pray as we kick that off would you pray with me our heavenly father we do thank you for the uh, the invitation to be part of your church to be part of your people gathered under your word and we ask now that as we do this that it would be um, beneficial to us and glorifying to you as we listen as we're challenged and as we're transformed by your spirit through your word as a body of believers we pray in jesus name for his glory amen right what's the difference between rocks and diamonds folks anyone got an idea any geologists in the house i had to go and ask pete forbes Tabor, my resident geologist what's the difference between rocks and diamonds ever wondered is this the sort of thing that keeps you up at night? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of ways in which you could describe the similarities between rocks and diamonds, aren't there? And this is what I was thinking the other day. I mean, they both come out of the ground, seemingly, and they're both hard, really hard. But the differences between rocks and diamonds, I don't think I need to convince you, are important and significant. They're different in the way that they're formed. They're different in their basic structure, the substance of which they are made or in which they exist from. Their relative rarity is something that separates them. Diamonds are, and have for thousands of years at that point, uh, been considered precious and are therefore highly prized and sought after. Anyone got a diamond on them today? I mean, no doubt you've kicked hundreds of rocks along the road on your way to school as a kid. No doubt you've thrown the few into the river, into a lake, into the old lady next door's yard. I don't know. I'm not going to cast any aspersions at this point. But you've driven past rocks without looking twice at them. But you wouldn't do that with a diamond. You wouldn't do any of those things with a diamond, would you? Am I right? Why not? Well, I want you to keep that, that little idea in mind as we go through this doctrinal series. I finish it off and we're talking about the church. I want you to keep that sort of idea in the back of your mind. We're going to come back there. Because as Steve rightly mentioned, there are two basic questions I think are really important that we need to work out, we need to ask and answer as we try to appreciate the doctrine of the church. These are the questions. They're on your outline. If you've got one on the way in, you'll see it there. Feel free to use it to follow along or take notes. And you'll also notice there's um, our statements of belief are on that sermon, uh, sorry, on that inset as well regarding the doctrines of the church. Um, like I've said all through the series, it's not an exhaustive list of everything we could say about the church, but the statements that we've made there 
that what we believe to be, what we hold as central and distinctive in the way we operate here at WEC as we seek to um, honour God and love others by taking his word seriously. But let's dive in. The first question you'll see we need to answer is, what or who is the church? Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, just before Easter, when we were talking about the Holy Spirit, you can be excused for thinking this is a bear trap. Now, I'm not sure if you remember when we think, oh no, should we be entering what or who? I can't remember. Remember I said that little, little sneaky one up for you? Like, Don't stress, I'm not doing it this time. No traps at this point. Anyways, we actually need to answer both questions. What is the church and then therefore who is the church? And what is a church? If I asked you, or I asked a child or an adult here, if I asked them to draw your idea or your understanding of a church, I'm confident I'd get something like this. Maybe that's what you'd draw. It's actually my picture. Sorry, Trudy, am I, not, am I an artist? Oh, that's flattering. I mean, I, I dabble. What can I say? <laughs> now, if you actually asked that question and got that answer, would it be wrong? No, no, that's completely recognisable as a church. If I went down the street with that picture and asked 100 people to identify what this was, 100 people would say, that's a church and a marvellous example of the same. Or words to that effect. Okay, if you're listening online, understand that this is the worst picture of a church ever drawn, um, which actually serves to illustrate my point further, because despite my lack of uh, artistic ability, everyone would still recognise that as a church. But while the answer of what is a church, and you get that answer, is not necessarily wrong, it's more narrow than it ought be. Strictly speaking, a church is not even, it's not just or not even, a building with a pointy roof. The word church, the word that is church, the word that is translated church so often in our Bibles is the word ecclesia. It simply means a gathering. That's what a church is. It's a gathering. You know, in this way, there's a group of people who meet on Sunday down at the uh, McDonald Park. There's a football church that meets there every Sunday during winter. If you go on Saturdays to Equex, there's a netball church most mornings. A church is just a gathering of people for a specific purpose. It's not a building or a structure. Now, this point is really helpfully highlighted in Acts 19 and 20, where that word ecclesia is used three different ways in the, in the space of about 20 verses to describe different gatherings. Let's look really quickly on the screen with me. You'll see this here. In Acts 1939, uh, the word ecclesia is used to describe a legal assembly, you know, a gathering of people to make a decision about a particular problem. A couple of verses later, it's used to describe, Ecclesia is used to describe this crowd, actually this riotous mob who have gathered. And it dismissed the Ecclesia, the crowd. And then a couple of verses later in the next chapter, Ecclesia is used again when Paul talks about the church, the actual gathering of Christians. So you can see here, Ecclesia is used to describe a gathering. Plain and simple. But what do we mean when we say the church? When we are speaking of it in the context of the Christian gathering, sometimes but not always in a building with a pointy roof, you know, a steeple and a cross. Clearly not always. (laughs) We're in a basketball court. We're a church. Well, there's two pairs of really important um, aspects I want you to recognise and know about the reality and the identity of Christian gatherings. The reality and the identity of the church. You'll see them there in the outline. I want to say and I want you to see that the church is both visible and invisible. The church is both local and universal. Now, I want to work through those backwards to get you, uh, uh, you know, explain them a little bit 
So you can see that there's a distinctive link between each. The church is both local and universal. Local in the sense that the word church may be used to describe a group of believers gathered together for a specific purpose. We'll get to that. That's our second question. But it may be a gathering ranging from a small group meeting in a house, a house church. Paul mentions this in Romans 16.5. They'll flash up on the screen. Or 1 Corinthians 16.19 talks about the house and the church or the church that meets in your house. It's a small gathering in a house. It's a church. To a number of larger gatherings across even a whole city. In fact, you'll see when Paul writes his introduction to most of his letters, he addresses it to, well, 1 Corinthians 1.2, the church of God in Corinth. Lots of little gatherings all across the city. There's the same thing at the beginning of the, Thess- of the letter to the Thessalonians. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, what I want you to see here is that regardless of the size, these are local expressions of the church. We at Wagga Evangelical are rightly described as a local expression of the church. So is St Andrews, Presbyterian down the town. So is Wagga Baptist. So was Naden's Presby. I could name and rattle off a hundred churches, well, several churches in Wagga who are part of this same thing. In fact, one of our guys is even preaching at St Andrews Presbyterian this morning because they're part of the same church. It's a local expression of the church. They may look and sound different, but if we're on about the same thing, about gathering under God's word to grow up and to grow out, that's a Christian church. But I I hope you realize we're not the only church in the world, either here at WEC or all the Bible-believing teaching churches in Wagga. We're not all of it. In fact, we're part of the church universal. That is, we are part of the largest possible gathering made up of churches all around the world, Collectively, every individual local church belongs to the widest expression of the church universal. And the Bible often speaks about the church in this way. Have a look at Ephesians 5.25, for example, where Paul is talking about husbands loving their wives as Christ does the church. And what does he do? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Who is the church there? Here he's speaking of all Christians collectively as the church. Several times in these verses he will refer to the church in that way. It is a collective of all those for whom Christ died. That's the church universal. So while we here at Wagga Evangelical are rightly called a church, we're part of a much larger gathering, a much larger church that's made up of all people, from all languages, of all places, of all cultures, From Perth to Pakistan to Peru, everyone for whom Christ died is part of the church universal. We heard that as Danny read it out for us in Revelation. We heard that bit about a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne, praising God. That's the universal church. That's an amazing reality. Can you, can you get a sense of what that must be, what that will be like to stand with people from all nations, all oriented in the same direction, to see the same marvellous thing? The, the closest I can muster is a few years back when Tiara and I um, travelled to Cambodia, we got to go to see Angkor Wat. Are you familiar with the, the Angkor Wat? You know, temples that were built hundreds of years ago lost in the jungle for ages and ages, sort of rediscovered and go along and see him. And we went there for the sunrise over Angkor Wat. And as we drove in, there were literally 
hundreds of buses and thousands of people of every creed, color, nation, language you can imagine. And it the, the, the really struck me as we were sort of walking in. It was this very wide space that you got to walk in towards the, the, uh, the, the Angkor Wat structure, the, uh, the actual temple itself. And there was this really overwhelming feeling of the, um, the enormity of the occasion. It was really quite emotional. It was palpable. It was really, I felt really privileged to be going and seeing and sharing this amazing experience with all these people. It was a pagan temple and I was having that sort of experience. Here we're talking about looking and gathering around the throne of God as brothers and sisters, marveling at the majesty of him who has bought us. That's enormous. If that doesn't get you a little goose bumpy, man, I don't know what will. That's huge. That's the privilege of the church universal. But the church may also be spoken about in a similar yet a different way when we speak about it being both visible and invisible. In fact, that first part, the visible part, is picked up, if you look in your outlines, in our first statement um, of belief. Statement one of our statements about the church is the visible church is the gathering of believers around Christ in his word. It's the visible church. The visible church is simply everyone who visibly gathers, who gathers to sit under God's word here on a Sunday. You here are all, at that moment, part of the local visible church. But why make the invisible distinction, you ask? It's a good question. It's an important distinction to make, in fact. It's very important because it serves as a reminder and an encouragement and a warning because the truth of the matter is, folks, I don't want anyone here just to be part of the church visible. But more, more importantly, more significantly, I want to make sure that everyone here is part of the church invisible. And the difference is huge. To put it simply, the visible church is the church as humans see it. The invisible church is the church as God sees it. What do I mean by that? Well, the reality is we can see the outward appearance of attendance in believers. We can see the outward evidence of a church member's life, but none of us here can actually see into people's heart to see the spiritual reality of their position before God. Only God can do that. I can't look at any individual and know definitively whether they are regenerate, spirit-indwelt Christians. But the Lord knows whose are his. Paul reminds Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those whom are his. That's the church invisible. That's the invisible church. In fact, God's word will say more about discerning the difference. In fact, he's even doing that from the Old Testament. Have a look at 1 Samuel 16 verse 7. Speaking of Saul specifically here, but to humanity generally, God says to Samuel about Saul, don't consider his appearance or his height for I've rejected him. Yahweh does not look at the things people look at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. Do you notice that there's a massive warning and an encouragement there? It's the same thing, and yet it should serve to warn and encourage you. It's, it's the same thing. It means don't look at the outside. Don't judge a book by its cover, if you will. Make sure that what's inside matches what's outside. The warning here is for individual believers, it's for us, as we assess our own lives first, not just as we consider the lives of others. It's a reminder, a warning and an encouragement that we need to hear over and over and over and over again. 
Because how many times, or how many tragic examples can you think of where there's a public and spectacular fall from grace, where Christians who seem to have it all together on the outside suddenly implode or explode? I'm not just thinking of the famous examples, although I could think of them. I'm not sure if anyone here ever listened to any of Ravi Zacharias back in the day. If you know that story, it is truly heartbreaking. I mean, Ravi was a guy who on the surface poured his entire life's effort into maturing disciples of Christ, making disciples of Christ. Quite honestly, he's one of the best apologetic speakers I've heard. He said true and powerful things about Jesus. And yet after his untimely death there not long ago from cancer, there's a heap of substantiated evidence of a double life of a failure to apply or be held by the truths that he so powerfully articulated to others. That is heartbreaking stuff. But it's not just the famous or the public examples that that hurt, it's the personal examples that sad me just as much. You may have some of these in your own experience of friends who either slowly drift away or suddenly seem to run away from Christ even as they're sitting in the pews part of the visible church. The warning is, don't let that be you. The encouragement is, that need not be you. And so before any of you sort of go, oh, that'll never be me, then we need to run a few diagnostic checks over our life. And I flog this application a lot because it's so crucial. But I really think we need to, as Christian brothers and sisters, do serious audits of our life often to heed the warning to make sure that the cover matches the middle. Because if the cover of your life reads, I'm a Christian who's convinced that there's nothing more important in life than knowing Jesus and making him known, and that ought be your title cover if you're a Christian. But if the content of your life's book tells a different story of your time, of your money, of your energy being invested elsewhere or anywhere else as a priority, that's a problem. Track those areas of your life. Follow the trail. Think, time, money, energy, where is it going? Another one for the modern day and age, if your Facebook or your Instagram or your Snapchat or whatever, Snapchat, Snapchat, I don't even know what it is, let alone how to use it. Whatever social media platform you use, if that media feed paints a different picture than the person who is known and loved by Jesus and desperately wanting others to know and love and be forgiven and assured by him too, if, that, if the cover doesn't match the middle, that's a problem. Now, get me right, hear me right here. I'm not saying that every post needs to start with a hallelujah, praise Jesus, baby, yeah, no. In fact, some allegedly Christian posts are just weird. Some of them are just over-spiritualized piffle of Bible verses taken out of context. That's another issue. Stop that too. But we'll get there. <laughs> I'm talking about the ones, that the seemingly harmless or inane posts where we're not trying to say anything and yet we're speaking volumes you know the resharing of the crude joke the dropping of the well-timed expletive for comedic value the humble brag where we pretend like we're just keeping people informed but really it's a show off look at me please click like moment friends it's also shallow it's also surfacy and the truth is you will win the accolades of people or the approval of people for it but God looks at the heart run that diagnostic over your life better still sit with a Christian brother or sister ask each other the question how are you going below the surface 
How are you going your Christian walk as a man, as a woman, as a parent, as a student, as a worker, as a whatever category you might fill? Ask the question, how are you going below the surface in this area of your life? And then answer the question honestly. I tell you what, there's your question over morning tea, folks. You know, I didn't even think of it today. I gave it to you. Will you ask it? Will you answer it? I might be eating my biscuit alone this morning. It'd be like Moses parting the Red Sea as I walk down the middle. Everyone fleeing to the edges, you know. But the point is, don't be content with just being a part of the visible church. Make it your life's intention to be part of the invisible church, which means going much deeper than just showing up to church on time, sticking around to chat about the footy of the fishing or the weather. It means bearing your soul and seeking that life-altering transformation in heart and mind that God does so generously, so mercifully, so often by his spirit, through his word, with the help of Christian brothers and sisters. That's the church. In fact, this kind of quite nicely leads me to the, the next question. What is the purpose of the church then? We've already started to answer this a little bit, but kick it open at Ephesians 4 if you've got your Bible there. Please open to Ephesians 4. There's a few other key points I want you, not just to see, but I want us to embrace. I want us to live out here as a church at Wagga Evangelical. Because if what we're doing here is not driven by God's word, then we're churching wrong. <laughs> So notice that Paul is addressing the Christians here in Ephesians 1.1. He says, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ. Essentially, he is addressing the local visible church in Ephesus, but he then goes on to make statements and claims and commands that are relevant, excuse me, to the universal invisible church, the saints of all time. And as he continues to address the church in chapter 4, one of the key things he highlights is the way the people in the church to relate, relate to each other. Have a look there in Ephesians 4.2 where he says, Be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, people often latch on to this idea of unity and say, well, here's, here's, the, here's the purpose of the church, it's unity. Unity is our goal, unity is our aim. To which I go, yes, so long as you qualify what's bringing and what's holding that unity together. In other words, unity around what? Because you notice that Paul doesn't just say unity, but he qualifies it immediately. What does he say? It's the unity of the Spirit. And who's the Spirit? Well, among other things that we saw before Easter, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, among other descriptions, he's the Spirit of truth. So what Paul is calling Christians, the Christian church, to unite around is the spirit of truth. It's not unity as the goal or the end in itself. It's not that, you know, whatever happens to stick together. It's not that kind of unity. No, that would mean allowing all manner of thought and expression to be tolerated with equal value in the family of God. And that is not right. If unity, naked unity, were the end or the goal, there's no space for disagreement. But it's unity of the Spirit. That's what we will be aiming for. It's unity around God's revealed truth in His Word, inspired and illumined by His Spirit. That is what must be the ongoing basis of our unity. Nothing more and certainly nothing less. Which means at times there will be space for disagreement, even separation. In fact, we looked at a couple of examples of this a few weeks back. We looked at a couple of church history examples for example, if you think that Jesus is not God, like Arius in the 4th uh, century, or like the modern expression in Jehovah's Witness, 
I'm not unified with you. I don't agree. And neither should you, by the way. Or if you think that Jesus is not man, like Nestorius, a little bit later, 6th century, like some of the Assyrian Christian churches still today, we're not on the same team. That's a problem. Or if you reject God as triune, if you reject God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, one God of the same essence and substance in three persons, like oneness Pentecostalism, which is popular today, we're not on the same team. There's no unity there. And that is biblically appropriate, necessary and right. But genuine unity of the Spirit? It's not just possible, it's necessary in the church because, as Paul says in verse 4 of Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit. This is your call to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in and through all. The church ought be unified and united because it's the same spirit of the same God who by the same truth about the same hope, by the same faith, in the same Lord that binds us. And I desperately desire unity in our family of God here. I desperately desire unity here at WEC and among other churches, but it's a specific type of unity. It's not based on my preference or my culture or my best guess, and it's not based on your preference or your culture or your best guess. It's got to be based on God's word. And all who are united by the spirit of truth belong to God's invisible church. And despite the, all the sameness here, same this, same that, same that, there's a rich diversity in the church here as well. Described in Ephesians 4, uh, Ephesians yeah, 4, helpfully, as a body. And it's not the only time that the body is mentioned as a sort of metaphor for the church. It's an excellent illustration just as in a human body, there's a rich diversity of parts and functions. They all work together to fulfill the overall purpose. We saw it in the kids' talk, in fact. In a human body, there is a goal and purpose to sustain life. So the nose hairs filter the earth, air for the lungs to provide oxygen to the blood, for the heart to pump around to give energy to the muscles and the brain, and so on and so forth, so the body can stay upright. My physiology is not wonderful, but I think that's a reasonable crack at it, isn't it, Trudy? Yeah, thanks. It's the same with the church, the body of Christ. There is diversity of functions. In fact, some of them are listed there in verse 11. But they all serve what unity of goal or function or purpose? Look at verse 12. Here is the purpose of church. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It's a very wordy way of saying that the church exists, a body of believers, believers gathered and united around God's word to grow us up, maturity, <laughs> and to grow us out or to grow others in. That's mission. That's probably just as wordy actually on the second verse, is it? Let me try that again. Here's the purpose of church, to mature believers, whether they're young or old, and to equip them for service inside the church and outside the church in evangelism. This is what we're trying to capture in statements two and three on our beliefs about the church. And practically what this means is that church is first and foremost for believers. 
Now, that's not to say that if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not welcome. No, you are. 1,000%, we want you to be here. You are welcome here. We're keen for you to hear and be transformed by the same Spirit through the same Word. But church is primarily for believers. It's first about strengthening and encouraging and challenging and transforming existing followers of Christ. As Paul puts it in verse 14 there, have a look. It's to take baby Christians, infants, to make us stronger. To teach us from God's word so that we won't be hoodwinked by sin, the world and the devil. It's to speak the truth, which is God's truth, in love so that Christians don't stay as they are but are continually transformed by God's Spirit through his word into increasing Christ-likeness, to grow deeper into Christ. Verse 15, to grow up into the head who is Christ. Let me just turn that a little bit more personally and practically to you now. It means that if you're not coming along to church regularly, you're churching wrong. If you are constantly finding something more significant or important to do on a Sunday morning, whether it be washing the car or preparing work for the week or getting a sleep in or doing charitable things like soup kitchens, if you are regularly finding something more important than gathering with Christian brothers and sisters to sit under God's word, to be equipped by him, to live and love as Christ followers every day of your life, you've significantly misunderstood the purpose and the importance of the church. You're treating a diamond like a rock. And equally problematic, I would say, is if you are coming to church every single week, sitting, listening, singing, nodding, humming, you know that one? Mm, yeah. <laughs> if you're doing that and yet you're not being taught and rebuked and corrected and trained by God's word, 2 Timothy 3.16, if you're coming along week to week and you feel no compulsion to change the way you think, the way you act, the way you parent, the way you work, the way you speak, the way you pray, the way you seek to engage your non-Christian neighbor and friends, if you're coming along and none of those things register, you're not churching right. If you can't discern any ongoing struggles in your life, or if you are unaware of areas where Christ is calling you to a deeper faith and obedience, you've misunderstood or are ignoring the purpose and the importance of the church. You're treating a diamond like a rock. Now, if that is you, can I say, if that is you, don't just feel the sting of the truth. Feel the invitation to change. Can you feel the encouragement and the love and the support of Christian brothers and sisters who equally feel the challenge and who, though likewise imperfect and struggling, are committed to what Paul describes in verse 1 and 2, who are committed to living worthy of the calling they've received, completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, keeping unity in the spirit through the bond of peace. That's what we're on about as a church. And we have all of this secured in Jesus on behalf of his people, the church. If you come along to church thinking you've, all got, it, you've got it all good and you've got to have this facade of perfection or I'm doing all right, Jack, you've misunderstood the idea of church. A church is a hospital for sick people. <laughs> by, by definition, the prerequisite of coming to church is to know that you're a sinner in need of salvation. That's 
what the church exists for. So friends, as we finish up on this sermon series on our statements of belief about the church, and before we actually share the Lord's Supper together, I want you just to realize again, let me just crystallize this hopefully, what we've got here, crystallized diamond reference, I didn't even mean that, it's a pun, unintentional, it's so good. Realize what you've got here at WEC. It is a diamond. It is God's gift to us believers. It's the church. It's people gathered around his precious word, growing in likeness of Christ for our good and his glory. It's still a rough cut diamond, folks. <laughs> you ever looked at a difference between a polished diamond and a rough cut diamond? It's still a rough cut diamond. There's a few impurities that still need to be chipped off here, but the worth and the value and the future of this place, of this church, of these people, it's in what Christ has done and is doing for us, all the way up to the sparkling end, where Jesus promises, well, actually it picks up that presenting his people, the church. How does Paul put it? Look at verse, uh, Ephesians 5.27. This is what talks about Christ's aim for which he gave his life or lay his life down for the church. It's so that he would present us as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle, any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's the hope that we have as a bunch of ragtag misfit sinners <laughs> who gather underneath Christ's word. It's the hope that one day we will be revealed and presented by Jesus to himself radiant, a radiant gathering without stain or wrinkle, holy and blameless. That's what we're on about as a church here at WEC. That's what I want you to be on about here, whether you've been here for 15 years or 15 seconds. We exist as a church for the glory of Jesus, for the good of each other, and we're trusting him to polish us into glory.